This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.4, The White Flag. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan. And if elected class president, I promise more Gundam for everybody. And I'm Nina, wondering if the tears of time look like ordinary tears. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 135 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest patrons, Jeff S., Eric A., Chip C., Matthew W., Exhumet, Adrian S., Rock Strongo, and Ellie S. This week we have the very exciting news that we reached our first Patreon income goal of $1,000 per month. Yes! This means we will finally be able to buy the new audio equipment Tom has been eyeing leading to better audio quality and easier post-production, especially when we have guests. This is our full-time and sometimes more than full-time job. Sometimes. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com patreon. Now that we've reached our first funding goal, we are going to be making some upgrades and improvements to our little studio space. So we are also going to be documenting those on Patreon and on our social media. So if you're interested, check that out. We'd also like to thank a special benefactor for contributing some materials for that upgrade. And you'll hear a lot more about that in the future. We also need to give a shout out to listener Matt for sending us tea and a book about Japanese particles from our wish list. Particles are a Japanese grammatical construct. I was very excited. Nina's a nerd. <laughs> you too can contribute to the podcast by buying us research materials, copious amounts of tea, and other things we need behind the scenes. The link to our wish list is at the bottom of our homepage, gundampodcast.com. And now, let's talk about Gundam. Welcome back to TNN, the Titans News Network, your source for objective reporting about spacenoid perfidy. Our top story tonight? Just wait till you check out this video people are sharing on MyEarth, the social networking site for Earthnoids. It's leaked video of Titans Commander Bascom playing with a kitten. Isn't he just the cutest? You said it, Tom. In other news, reports are coming in from residents of Green Oasis about unidentified mobile suits engaged in combat with colonial defense forces inside the colony. Reached for comment, Titans spokesperson Jamaican Donningham clarified that a joint Titans Federation training exercise was held in Green Oasis, but that reports of live fire combat are simply the paranoid delusions of spacenoids suffering from space madness after too long away from Earth's loving embrace. Gosh, I sure am glad I live on Earth. And how? Finally, a tragic note. High school karate athlete and multiple-time Homo Avis champion Camilla Byron remains missing. Authorities believe that she was radicalized by the illegal underground press and ran away from her loving parents in the company of a suspicious-looking blonde man in red. If you know the whereabouts of this troubled young woman, please contact the Titans tip line as soon as possible. This week, we are talking about Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 3, Inside the Capsule. We also have research about Shihei, or private armies, and Japanese composer Shigeaki Saegusa, the composer of all that fantastic background music in Zeta. Oh, it's so good. But first, the recap.
The episode opens on Luna 2. Due to its proximity to the Green Oasis colonies, it continues to be used as a base for Earth Federation forces. A nearby Federation ship, the Bosnia, notices a strange Minovsky particle density reading. They have detected the Argama. Mobile suit pilot Lila Mira Raira is ready to go fight Ayug, but her captain recommends caution. Stop them and demand an inspection, but the goal is not to destroy them, he reminds her. She launches in a red Galbaldi. Meanwhile, Basque gives a bandaged and obviously still injured Bright Noah a handwritten letter to deliver to Admiral Jamitov Haimem on Earth. Basque makes Bright lean over the desk to take the letter, even though it clearly pains him. On his way out the door, Jamaican wishes him a safe journey and gives him an unnecessarily hard slap on the back. Bright winces, then heads to his ship. But Jamaican isn't just here to torment Bright. He's brought news that the Ayug forces that stole the Mark II have been detected. Basque asks if he's sure that it's Lieutenant Franklin's son, Camille, who stole it. On board the Argama, Camille talks to Lieutenant Quattro, Commander Beckener, and Commodore Blex. When he mentions that he's read about Amaro Ray in underground publications, Beckener is surprised that such a thing exists in Green Oasis. But Camille points out the colony wasn't always a military base. Their conversation is interrupted by a call from the bridge. Someone is coming. The three officers ready to defend their ship, instructing Ensign Rekoa to look after Camille. In a cramped elevator, Quattro, Beckener, and Blex talk about Camille. Blex hopes that the boy turns out to be a new type. Beckener asks what Quattro thinks, but he reminds them that new types aren't espers. He can't know such things about Camille just by looking at him. But he senses something. Camille's parents, Lieutenant Franklin and Lieutenant Hilda, are brought aboard a Titan's ship, the Alexandria, ostensibly to observe the Ayug mobile suits. Something doesn't feel quite right, but when they question their escort, the only response is, these are Captain Basque's orders. Lila and her wing people finally reach the Argama, but her pleasure at finding them is overcome by surprise. One of their ships is entirely unrecognizable. Did Ayug build it themselves? Lila signals for them to halt, but they maintain speed. She buzzes by, and Quattro is surprised by her speed. Still, they hold their fire. Touching their ship to open a line of communication, Lila demands to know their affiliation. Beckoner responds, We are Ayug. Your orders are meaningless. Before she can open fire, Quattro launches in his Rick Diaz and fires on her, forcing her back. She is fast enough to dodge his attacks, and he takes off after her. Camille's parents sit together, waiting on the Alexandria. Hilda asks if it's true that Camille stole a Mark II, but Franklin, turning a page in his book, replies with a tense, How should I know? Hilda crosses her arms. This is typical, only thinking of yourself. Snapping his book shut and pounding it to the table, Franklin snaps, I'm thinking about Basque. Are you sure you're not thinking about that girl, Margarita? Franklin leans across the table to slap Hilda hard across the face. Lila and Quattro continue to duel, Lila wondering if the red mobile suit pursuing her could possibly be the red comet. The fighting continues, but soon, the Bosnia sends up flares, ordering its mobile suits to retreat. Quattro managed to shoot down one of the Federation mobile suits, and Lila mutters under her breath that she hopes it really was the Red Comet they were fighting, otherwise this result is embarrassing. The Argama rushes to make repairs, anticipating a second wave of enemies at any moment. On the Alexandria, the Titan's mobile suit pilots are being given instructions. They are to open and read their orders when the capsule launching after them becomes visible. Lieutenant Emma will have 15 minutes to attempt to negotiate the return of the Mark II mobile suits. Emma asks if they can assume the capsule contains some sort of bomb, but Jamaican only responds, it's something like that. Emma approaches the Argama carrying a massive white flag in her Mark II's hands, and the Ayug officers decide to let her board. The crew watch, fascinated by this brave young fanatic, as Quattro leads her down the Argama's halls to a meeting with Captain Beckner and Commodore Blex. Blex reads Basque's handwritten demands carefully, and is instantly furious. Did Emma know the contents of the letter? No? No wonder she can stay so calm. If Camille and the Mark IIs are not returned to the Federation, Camille's parents will be killed. Emma can't believe the military would do such a thing, but the Ayug officers are not surprised at all. After all, the Titans aren't military, they're mercenaries, a private army, and it's much bigger than Basque and his forces. Quattro wonders if it could be a bluff, but Blex knows Basque, and thinks him capable of going through with it. Several soldiers overhear the conversation, and the news that the Federation has hostages tears through the ship, with one soldier accidentally telling Camille, mistaking him for an Ayug pilot because he is wearing a normal suit. 
As the Argamas officers debate the best strategy, the capsule comes into view. Jared and his Isaac, catching a glimpse of the capsule's flashing lights, reads his orders. If there is any sign of the enemy attempting to take the capsule, destroy it. The Argama sends an observation camera to get a closer look. It shows them the capsule, like an orange beacon with flashing lights, enclosed in glass. Inside the glass, Camille's mother, Hilda, eyes wide with terror. Emma still cannot believe that the Titans would do this, and insists that the person in the capsule must be a hologram. They continue to argue about whether or not to accede to Basque's demands, and decide to have Camille identify the person in the capsule, but they are too late. Camille is long gone. The moment he heard that his parents had been taken hostage, he wound his way through the ship and to the hangar, getting into one of the captured Mark IIs and taking off. At first, Jared thinks this Mark II is Emma, returning from negotiations, but there's no signal, and it's the wrong suit. Realizing that it is in fact an AUG pilot, he fires at Camille, but misses. Camille approaches the capsule. His mother appears to be yelling from inside, but he cannot hear her. He thinks to himself, It's always like this! You're always doing this to me! What are you doing here? As he reaches to take hold of the capsule, Jared fires, shattering the glass and sending Hilda into the vacuum of space. Jared never saw the contents of the capsule, and can't understand why there was no explosion, no damage to the Mark II whatsoever. What just happened? He cannot help but feel uneasy. In the Mark II, Camille sobs and cries out before the episode fades to black. This is our response to Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 3, Inside the Capsule, or Kapsuru no Naka, which means inside the capsule. Unlike the slow burn of the previous <laughs> series, they want us to know all about Camille's issues with his parents right up front. <laughs> first Gundam did throw Amuro's dad out into open space in the first episode, so it's not like this is unprecedented. No, but I meant more in terms of, like, we get some conflicting information about Amuro's dad first off. The first thing we hear him say is that he hopes his work will mean that fewer very young people get caught up in the war. And he has a photo of Amuro sitting on his desk. And you get kind of a vibe in that conversation with Bright of like, this is all for him. I'm doing it all so that my son can grow up in a more peaceful world. Right, it feels rather sweet. And then we have the conflicting moment of him trying to save the Gundam and his son saying, is the Gundam more important than people? And him just being like, you go get in the shelter. <laughs> yes, the Gundam is absolutely more important than people. And then we think he's dead. So we get some conflicting information and nothing at all about the mom. For all, for all we know, his mom is dead. Yeah. <laughs> until he mentions that she lives on Earth and we're like, oh. But why does she live on Earth when you live in space? What happened there? <laughs> That's sort of what I mean by a slow burn. It takes a while. Mm -hmm. And there are additional little reveals over time about those relationships that add depth to it. And perhaps we're going to get some of that between Camille and his father, but unless there are going to be flashbacks, it's too late to add any depth to that maternal relationship. Ooh, yeah. Well, and there's not, like, nuance to Camille's dad. Like, Camille's dad is a dirtbag. Happy Father's Day, everybody. <laughs> yeah, he's having an affair. He's physically abusive. He's worried about saving his own skin. We get the impression he has basically written off Camille. Oh, yeah, and did so a long time ago. You know, if you have a quote-unquote problem child, if you have a difficult kid, I'm sure it's tempting to be like, well, I've tried everything and I can't fix it. But to come to that conclusion when they're still in your care, when they're not grown, when they're not an adult, feels pretty awful. Absolutely. In preparation for talking about Camille's family, I have been doing a lot of reading about abusive and dysfunctional family dynamics, and it's very common for a child to be assigned the role of, like, the problem child, mm. the one whose fault all of this is, mm. and then to be written off like that. We also get the quite painful moment of Camille realizing that it's his mother... <laughs> in the capsule, and as he's about to retrieve the capsule, as he's coming up on it, 
he can't hear his mother. She can't hear him. They're both like yelling at each other, basically. And he yells something like, you always do this to me. Yeah. When we talked about it, when we thought about it, we think is probably him feeling a sense of being in the position of having to save her. Right. Which again, happens a lot in families that have abusive dynamics. There's a child who's trying to protect or save the parent who is the target of the abuse. Mm -hmm. Back in episode one, we talked about how Camille's anger, his impulse control, his violent reactions to taunting, like it's all a result of his lifelong experience of like oppression and humiliation at the hands of more powerful people. Well, this is like the culmination of Camille's lifelong relationship with his parents, always feeling like he has to protect or save his mother from his dad. And the the wrinkle that even though she is the victim of this physical abuse, that doesn't protect her from Camille's anger mm -hmm. because she's his mother. She's supposed to protect him. She's supposed to look after him. And so for him to feel in some ways as if their roles are almost reversed, as if he has to look after her and defend her, means that even though he hates what happens to her, he's still angry with her. He resents her. I will say we don't get much of her. She doesn't seem at all cowed by her husband. I mean, she taunts him. She does, but does she say anything after he hits her? She like, needles and taunts him, and then once he smacks her across the face, she's very like withdrawn. And to be fair, for all that she does needle and taunt him, she hasn't left him. They are still together. Well, and just goes to show, to outward appearances of people around her, she is a very successful career woman. She's a materials engineer. She is a lieutenant in the Titans. Who isn't a lieutenant? That's the question. Um, but she holds she holds a respected position, a position of some privilege within the society that they live. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's this ugliness behind the scenes. Uh, we will definitely include links to hotlines and websites that provide support. So if any of our listeners are in a bad situation or you know someone who is and who needs help, we will provide some resources for that. Yes. You mentioned that, like, everyone in this show is a lieutenant. There's actually something interesting in that because part of the reason why it seems like everyone is a lieutenant is because several different Japanese ranks get translated into English as lieutenant. Ah. So they don't all have exactly the same rank. Okay. They're just all called lieutenants. Gotcha. So Franklin and Hilda, that's Camille's mom's name. Even though Franklin and Hilda are both called lieutenant in English, they have different ranks. And Camille's dad is slightly higher ranked than his mother is, which plays into that power mm. dynamic within their relationship. But also look at the way the Titans behave. Look at how they treated Bright. Mm -hmm. Like within the Titans organization, there is an institutionalized violence. It's an inherently physically abusive. And domineering, like higher ranks dominate lower ranks. It's like last week's discussion of colonialism, right? The, in addition to all of the other ways in which control is exercised, the threat of violence and the methodical, consistent, deliberate use of violence. We haven't yet seen as much of the parallel storytelling that First Gundam used so consistently, but one technique from First Gundam that you might remember was juxtaposing either two opposite or two very similar situations by cutting directly from one to the other. And in this episode, we get a cut directly from the scene where Camille's dad hits his mom to a scene of Rekoa, uh, mm. Rekoa in the Ayug, like fussing with Camille's spacesuit and showing him how to put it on properly in a very maternal kind of way. Yep. So we are getting some of what we got with Amuro, which was like, Camille finding other mothers. Yep. Finding other sources of care and support because it's not part of his biological family. Right. We haven't seen this yet for Camille, but we should keep an eye out for him looking for surrogate father figures. And probably we should be aware that due to the upbringing Camille has actually had, 
he's not going to be looking for particularly good surrogate father figures. He's going to be looking for ones who are... Distant. Maybe a little violent and... Impossible to please. Yeah. Who are just better enough than his dad, but still reminiscent of Camille's absolute dirtbag dad. Crumbum. <laughs> okay, now let's talk about the Titans. This is specific to one person in the Titans, but I was very struck by Jared's uneasiness when he shoots the canister and nothing happens. Something feels very wrong to him. Mm-hmm. He has foolishly uh, come to the conclusion that, oh, it must be a bomb, even though they didn't tell him anything of the sort and they've been exceptionally secretive. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason for them to be secretive if it was a bomb. Uh, and he feels uneasy, which is striking because even though we've only seen him you know, in two episodes, he's always very cocky. He's always very sure of himself. Even when he makes horrible mistakes, he justifies it. (laughs) Horrible mistakes like crashing a Mark II into a government building. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure that lawyer who came to let Camille out of military prison, I'm pretty sure that guy died in that crash. I'm pretty sure a few people died. Certainly many people were injured. Mm -hmm. And Jared just like brushes himself off and is like, oh, guess a written apology isn't going to be enough this time. Jared don't care. Jared don't give a He sees everything as justified if it makes him a better titan, Mm -hmm. which gives a strong impression of the sort of soldier who will do whatever he has ordered unquestioningly, unconcernedly. And I find myself wondering, is this the first time in his life he's acted on orders and gone, huh, that didn't feel quite right. (laughs) I don't feel so good about this. I don't like that. And is this the beginning of a process with him? Are we going to see that expand? Are we going to see that trend continue with him? Or is Jared perhaps a little bit of a new type and he is picking up on Camille's extreme distress, like a radio receiver? I didn't think that was it because he describes the feeling as uneasiness, not sadness. He doesn't say, oh, why do I feel sad? Why do I all of a sudden feel angry? Camille doesn't feel uneasy. (laughs) Camille is furious and distraught. Maybe Jared doesn't understand what feelings are. (laughs) What feeling is this? It's kind of like sadness, but also hunger. The feeling you're feeling is just called a feeling. (laughs) It's a throwaway line, but to me, the most surprising thing that we learned about the Titans is when Emma is prepping them all for their mission to go and retrieve the uh, Mark IIs. And she mentions that a bunch of the people in the mission have never piloted Hyzax before. This implies a couple of possibilities. One is that the Titans have been expanding very quickly. And so to fill the ranks, they're bringing in people who are not necessarily fully trained. That could also not necessarily be a Titans-wide problem. That could be this particular group of Titans in this particular area of space they could also maybe not have enough hyzaks to give everybody the training opportunities that they need so there's there's some kind of resource crunch somewhere (laughs) leading to them sending a bunch of very inexperienced pilots on important missions they could also just be pilots who are experienced piloting gyms Mm. remember everyone in the titans is an earthnoid whereas the Hyzak is based on Xeonic technology. There was another line in that scene that was a little hard to understand, but it's when Jamaican, who is the commander of this group of Titans, mm-hmm. tells them after Emma Sheen has you know, given her presentation on what the mission is going to be, he tells them, and remember, someone else will be in charge of this unit tomorrow. Like, is he just undercutting Emma? Or is this like, go out there and do your best, and maybe one of you will be in command next time? unclear it does feel like he's undercutting emma but it's also possible she is not in a permanent command position Mm -hmm. she knows that her position is temporary and it's a matter of seeing who proves themselves who kind of rises to the top well and as we pointed out everybody here is a lieutenant right (laughs) when you say a machine really fast it sounds like a machine huh (laughs) 
<laughs> I wonder if there's anything to that. That's a that's a deep level pun. Emma Sheen. Machine. Yeah. Emma Sheen. Yeah. That is an advanced level English pun, but I would not put it past Tomino. Nor would I. We've talked about how the names almost always contain some kind of kernel of meaning. I, for one, was completely flabbergasted by Emma's wild naivete. <laughs> Does she know what group she signed up for? Is she aware Apparently not. of anything actually about the Titans? She's just got a good feeling about that Basque guy. She likes the cut of his jib. She's seen them beat Bright. Yep, yep. For no good reason. And she's like, oh, they wouldn't take hostages. What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> the Titans would never do that. They're part of the army. And Blex is like, they're not really an army. They're a private mercenary force. Mm -hmm. They're Basque's private army. And Emma's like, well, I never agreed to be part of no private army. Blex also mentions, and this is useful to know, Basque is not the top of this. Yeah, we know Basque has sent a message via Bright to someone named Jamatov Hyman. Great names in this series. Whereas before, we are possibly left to wonder if the Titans are kind of a rogue element and how they came to exist in that state. Now, we're left wondering, does this actually go right to the top of the Federation government? Which, after my research last time, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> Blex kind of suggests something like that. Because he says, the Titans are not Basque's personal army. The Titans are the personal army of that group of people living on Earth whose souls are weighed down by gravity. And Blex knows Basque. Yeah, Basque, after he takes Camille's parents hostage, is like, ha take that, Blex. <laughs> So they know each other. This is personal for the two of them. I'm going to make a guess, and it's that they fought together in the war. Hmm. Ostensibly on the same side. Hmm. Speaking of ostensibly fighting on the same side, Lila, Mira, Ryra, and the Titans. What an awful name. Ryra, <laughs> Mira, Ryra. You miss this in the English, but in the Japanese, her first name and her last name are precisely the same. The L's aren't really L's, they're R's. Right. So it's Ryra, Mira, Ryra. <laughs> Say that ten times fast. <laughs> yeah, we get to see a new mobile suit, the Galbaldis. These are actually Galbaldi Betas. The Galbaldi Alpha was part of the cancelled MSX manga project, and this is one of several mobile suits from that project that got revived for Zeta. It's kind of like a Gelgoog 3.0, the Galbaldi Alpha being a like evolved version of the original Gelgoog, and then this one be the third version. If you transliterate Galbaldi back into English, it ends up sounding like Garibaldi, mm -hmm. the Italian nationalist. So I don't know if that's really where the name comes from, but it's a, it's as good a guess as any. From the moment Lila shows up on screen, I was like, oh, Lady Char. <laughs> She's basically wearing the same outfit. Pilot's a red mobile suit. She's almost got the same haircut. <laughs> She's very fast. That was a great moment. She's fighting with Quattro, and Quattro's like, oh, why can't I hit her? Which is usually <laughs> their reaction to him. So the shoe is on the other foot. That whole combat and that whole exchange between the two of them is great. Because later on in that fight, she's having the same difficulty hitting him. And she's like, could he be the Red Comet? He's piloting a red mobile suit. So are you. But she knows that she's not the Red Comet. What if? Or is she? Right. <laughs> I have a question for you. Did you get a sense uh, from the conversations that Lila and her commanding officer have and all of their exchanges and eventually them backing off of the Ayug ship, did you get a sense of there being any conflict between them and the Titans? Hmm. I didn't particularly. There was a moment when her commander is like, oh, the Titans will be on their tail, like... If we have been told to back off, it's because someone else is right there ready to, to chase these guys down. So I got the feeling from the captain that he is a very, like, punch the clock, do his job, earn his pension kind of officer. And that Lila is very much, like, Lila's an ace. 
Lila is very much about her reputation. Lila is very much about pride and prestige. And, and wants like, to fight. Yeah. She asks him at one point, she's like, do you think I'm that war hungry? And he's like, yes. <laughs> yes. You yes, absolutely I do. are. Behave yourself. <laughs> I got a sense of that conflict between the two of them. And based on his attitude towards his work and his orders and the Federation, I kind of got the feeling from him that like... He might not like the Titans, but he's not going to make waves. He might not like the Titans, but it doesn't matter enough to him mm-hmm. to do anything about it. Right. And I didn't get a sense from Lila that she cares about the Titans either. I think Lila probably thinks that she's better than the Titans. She probably has no tolerance for their sense of elitism and superiority. I think Lila probably thinks that there's nobody out there better than her. That feels like reading a lot into it. I think she resents being told to back off. I <laughs> think she would have rather seen the fight through. I didn't get quite that much cockiness there, <laughs> but, you know, different impressions. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did like her at the end after their fight. She's like, I really hope that was the Red Comet, because otherwise this result is embarrassing. <laughs> yes. <sighs> the abuse of Bright continues. That scene tells us so much, not so much about Basque. I mean, we know Basque is like a cruel, abusive tyrant. It tells us a lot about Jamaican. Mm -hmm. Jamaican's the guy who comes in. He's like, oh, have a good trip on Earth. Slaps Bright really hard on the back. Knowing that it will hurt. But with this air of like faux friendliness. Yeah. And then Jamaican is the one who's undercutting Emma later. He's so sneering and so cruel, but in a officious, aristocratic kind of way. What's his rank? Like, where does he fit in all this? Is he... So he is a lieutenant commander, Jamaican Donningham. He's like Basque's henchman, but above all of the other Titans pilots. So I only touched on this briefly when I talked about colonialism, but uh, in colonial police forces, the like social and power difference between different ranks of soldiers or police is very important, both for the government's control of this force and control within the force itself, but also for that force controlling the populace. All the differences in rank and power are what prevent any like sympathy growing between groups of people because they're put in these very stratified social systems. And he's got that like British colonial officer mustache. And a very tiny face. But everything about him is like... It's like fake jolly. Faux mm-hmm. jollity. It's arrogant and elitist. Of all of the characters, he's the one who most feels like the token Western imperialist villain in any given kung fu movie. <laughs> True. Luna 2 is still occupied by the Federation because that's where Lila musters from. Mm-hmm. They try to slow down the Aug ship under the pretense of totally normal inspections, which feels very, like, customs and immigration-y. Right. We also get some brief reveals about Federation technology. This is our one of our first glimpses of members of the Federation Army who are not Titans. <laughs> we have the MK2 that we find out is actually the end of its line. They're not going to further develop the Mark II, they're going to start some new line of mobile suits, incorporating more Xeon technology. Yeah. And the Mark II, it feels like, is already outdated, even by the time it's completed. Like, there's this new armor that they're working on, but it's not on the Mark II. The Mark II uses the old armor. And Lieutenant Franklin already has all of these ideas for an even better mobile suit than the Mark II. That the Mark II was really just a, a test bed, never meant to be put into mass production. And then we see from this that the Hyzak seems to be a Titan's exclusive mobile suit because the Federation forces, their top of the line mobile suit is the Galbaldi. The Titans are working on their own projects at Crips. They're building their own battleship. They're building their own mobile suits there. There's definitely some siloing of R&D and of technology between these different groups. I feel like every time this happens, I need to ask you, what did you think of the new mobile suit? What did you think of the Galbaldi? It was fine. I didn't especially like it. Think of all of the suits so far. (laughs) I quite like the color scheme of the Mark II. The black and... Yeah, the very dark navy, but with yellow and red details. 
but in terms of an actual new mobile suit, the Rick Diaz is pretty cool. Okay. Lila drops a great bit of knowledge when she looks at the Aeg ship and she says, hang on. <laughs> that does not look like any ship I have ever seen. Are Aeg making their own ships? That tells us a lot about Aeg. Think about the infrastructure necessary for shipbuilding. Oh, yeah. And not just needing a place to do it and the resources to, like, the physical materials to do it, but money, knowledge, people. You, you need engineers of various different stripes. You need a lot. <laughs> like, the, the needs of that kind of a project are immense. And they need to be able to do it without the government knowing about it. Like, they didn't just build the Argama, they built the Argama in secret. Right, and it's one thing for a government to build a ship. It's another for a, like, fringe. <laughs> well, how fringe are they now, I'm wondering, hmm. group to do this. Speaking of Ayug. <laughs> <laughs> Good transition. Yes. I love the bit where Lila comes to stop them, and they're like, well, we're Ayug. <laughs> <laughs> we aren't going to listen to your orders. We don't recognize your orders as legitimate. <laughs> they are meaningless to us. And then Lila's just like, all right, then I guess I'm going to open fire. Well, but again, this is classic colonialism in that there are people who've been colonized who participate in systems established by the colonizer to try to change them to like work from the inside to change those systems. There are other colonized people who take the position that no, everything put into place by the colonizer is illegitimate. The only thing to do is to ignore and dismantle those systems and replace them with something else. This isn't necessarily a violent, nonviolent distinction. Like there are nonviolent ways to do that latter thing. This was huge in Ireland during the resistance against the British uh, colonization, occupation, however you want to describe it where at a certain point, the Irish people just created an entirely separate economy that bypassed all of the tax and customs and control systems. To a certain degree, Blex's actions are nonviolent. He's not attacking Lila. He's simply saying, we're not going to subject ourselves to inspection <laughs> by you because we do not recognize you as a legitimate government official, mm -hmm. <laughs> government employee. And it's only when she prepares to actually attack them that they counterattack. Right. Well, this comes up a lot, actually, in nonviolent resistance where people end up in jail. Because <laughs> a lot of times they're in jail because they refuse to do something that, that they don't recognize as a legal imperative. Mm -hmm. Whether it's paying taxes or giving up a source or, you know, there are a lot of different forms of this. Interestingly... The Ayug crew seem surprised when they are talking to Camille and they find out that there are underground publications. Mm-hmm. Speaking of nonviolent ways of resisting. And these underground publications talk about Amaro Ray. <gasps> Which is, like, cool to know. It's interesting that Camille has been reading the revolutionary literature already. But also, that doesn't bode well for Amaro. No. <laughs> if, like, <laughs> knowledge of Amaro is considered subversive is he dead in prison or on the lamb those feel like the options it makes me deeply curious as to what his legacy is what is he known for now either because of the war or because of something he did in the immediate aftermath of the war and he's generally regarded as a gloomy mecca enthusiast with no friends i somehow think it's more complicated than that at this point well he's also an esper new types aren't espers tom <laughs> You should listen to Lieutenant Quattro. <laughs> that elevator scene with Blex and Quattro is so awkward. I think that's the nature of elevator conversations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But you ever just look at Zeta and you like you see all of these scenes with just incredible framing. Just really, really great cinematography. Everything is put together in really interesting ways. Like the scene... Just for an example from the first episode, the scene where Camille breaks out of military detention and like runs through the hallway and then through the lobby and then out. And then it switches to like his mother's perspective and then back to him. And then he's in the car. And like that is a masterpiece of cinematography. And then you get scenes like the elevator where it's just like a fisheye lens at groin height looking up at three burly dudes crammed into an elevator. <laughs> it's just the most awkward, weirdest 
way to frame that scene that I can imagine. Well, it does give us a sense of being crowded. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Mm-hmm. Maybe they wanted to show off everyone's cool outfits. They all look like pirates. <laughs> So, do you think it's because of 80s fitness culture? There's a lot of sleeveless shirts here. Oh, yeah. I feel like a lot of people are uh, giving free tickets to the gun show. <laughs> <laughs> Showing off their muscles. <laughs> it's a lot of male energy in that elevator. <laughs> well, these like sort of frayed-looking deep V tunics that have another shirt underneath them. It's got kind of a piratey <laughs> feel for me. They are the renegades, right? These are the rebels. They're going to look a little bedraggled, a little piratey. You bring up a good point, though. Like, Quattro is like a tall, buff dude, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is the best evidence that your theory that Quattro might actually be Char, it, it doesn't hold water. It's completely ridiculous. Like, Char was not that tall, and Char was already like 20. People do not grow six or seven inches. After they're 20. Men don't stop growing until they're 24 or 25. That would be a remarkable growth spurt. Yeah, and? It just seems so unlikely. Besides, Char clearly had sleeves. (laughs) And a mask. Whereas Quattro has sunglasses and a mullet. (laughs) Totally different. But yes, what got us talking about the elevator in the first place is I do love that little bit where Blex is like, I really hope that Camille Kid's a new type. What do you think, Quattro? <laughs> yeah, Quattro. Guys, new types aren't psychic. I do have a good feeling about this kid, though. <laughs> this week, we research and discuss Shihei, or private armies, and Japanese composer Shigeake Salagusa. When Emma Sheen delivers Basque Alm's handwritten ransom demand to the AUG leadership, AUG leader Blex Forer compares the Titans to a list of things. Mercenaries, an organized crime syndicate, and finally, a private army. Not just for Basque, but for all those whose souls are weighed down by gravity. This, by the way, is the first time that particular euphemism appears in Gundam, but I can guarantee you it won't be the last. It is this last one, Private Army, or Shihei in the Japanese, that strikes a nerve for Emma. The Titans are still part of the Federation forces. I never signed up to be part of Basque's Private Army, she protests, and uses the word Shihei again. Shihei literally means Private Army. The word is composed of two characters. The first means I or myself and can mean private, while the second is used for various military terms and it means troops or army. Shihei mostly refers to armed forces that exist within a modern state that has a separate conventional state army. So the personal armies of feudal lords or the warrior monks who answered only to their temple in the medieval period don't really count. This definition covers a broad variety of different kinds of armed troops, from the cartel and yakuza enforcers to tribal militias, government-sponsored death squads, and the armed wings of political parties. This may not sound much like the Titans, elite division of the Federation forces that they are, but the connection Blex sees between the two of them can be explained, I think, by the closely related word gunbatsu. This word is composed of characters meaning army, on the one hand, and clique, clan, or faction, and it's used in two main senses. The first one is to describe regional warlords and the groups that they lead. That's a classic shihei. The second use of gunbatsu is to describe factions within a state's official armed forces, in which the member's principal loyalty is to the faction and its leaders. This latter sense may not be what we think of when we think of private armies, it's certainly not what Emma Sheen was thinking about, but Blex is pointing out that the line between a gunbatsu that is a shihei and a gunbatsu that isn't is awfully porous. If it walks like a duck, and it makes threats like a duck, and it abducts innocent people to use as hostages like a duck, then that duck is probably part of a private army loyal only to the people whose souls are weighed down by Earth's gravity. (laughs) I'm not going to try to cover all of the armies, private and otherwise, that might have inspired the Titans. Certainly not right now. The same sorts of circumstances that we see in Zeta Gundam, the colonial exploitation of the sides, the remote Earth's political dominance, the widening gap between elites and common folk, and the racial divide between Earthnoids and Spacenoids, 
not to mention the after effects of the generational trauma that was the One Year War, have altogether created organizations like the Titans throughout history and throughout the world. But this is a question I'm going to return to again and again, because it kind of seems like the Titans might be important to our story. So you can consider this to be merely part one of our exploration of the real history that inspired the Titans. And today I'm going to continue to focus on private armies, looking first at the circumstances that create them, and then I'm going to give you a brief overview of one of the oldest, largest, and most influential private armies in history. There are five major factors that contribute to the formation of private armies. Or perhaps you could say that there are five factors which create an environment in which private armies are endemic. First, arms control is lax, either because there are no arms control laws or because they're not adequately enforced, such that private individuals are able to obtain weapons, including heavy weapons. This is pretty baseline. You can't have a private armed force unless you have private arms. Second, the authority of the government and the official armed forces is weak and poorly centralized. Third, there are well-established power structures that run parallel to and compete with the state. These can be based on pre-modern feudal loyalty to certain families, religious affiliation, or ethnic, tribal, or clan identities. Now I'm thinking about when you talked about the uh, all the military coup. <laughs> Well, and those were all gunbatsu. Those were army cliques of young junior officers who owed more loyalty to their faction than to their nominal superiors. Fourth, the people lack a sense of national unity. This one is especially common in colonial or post-colonial states that were created by amalgamating multiple pre-colonial states. The official armed forces nominally represent the nation. But if that nation is only some lines on the map rather than a real sense of shared identity, then groups within and outside the army tend to be loyal to their own people, however they define those terms. And fifth, finally, the state's rulers are engaged in illegal activities, such as assassinating opposition leaders. This last one works in two different ways. On the one hand, the rulers create private armies to do the illegal activities so that they can get the benefits while denying responsibility. On the other hand, if a private armed force is running around terrorizing your community by killing people or trafficking drugs, weapons, or people, and the nominal authorities are turning a blind eye to it for some reason, then you yourself have a strong incentive to create your own private armed force. And to some degree to ignore attempts at control by the central government, because clearly they're not the real power here. Like, you wind up treating these local forces as the local source of authority rather than the government. Right. Even if those local private armies are sponsored by the government, they tend to displace the government. So now that we have the theory down, let's get specific. And because this is MSB, let's get historical and look back in time to one of the most important and unique private armies in history. In 1600, Queen Elizabeth I issued a royal charter to the governor and company of merchants of London trading into the East Indies. This was for the purpose of trading with the Mughal Empire, then ruling what is now India, and the Qing Empire, ruling what is now China. This governor and company of merchants of blah, 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 blah is eventually going to be called the British East India Company, so <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and start calling them that now. That's how we know them. They were also at various times called the Honorable East India Company, but ha. they were not, so I'm not going to call them that. By 1650, the company had established factories on the Indian mainland near Kolkata and were employing a small force of about 30 mercenary guards. The company's expansion over the next hundred years required a simultaneous expansion in their armed forces, which were made up of local native recruits and Europeans recruited in England and Ireland. But the real turning point came when the War of Austrian Succession and then the Seven Years' War touched off proxy wars around the globe. In India, these took the form of the Three Carnatic Wars, from 1746 to 1763, between the French East India Company, the British East India Company, and each side's local allies. At this point, the company's presence in India was based around three of what were called presidency towns. Madras, now Chennai, Bombay, now Mumbai, and Calcutta, now Kolkata. Each of these had their own armed forces composed of, quote, European units, which were entirely composed of imported white European soldiers, and units of local recruits commanded by European officers. 
In the mid-1700s, those European units were consolidated into three European regiments, one for each presidency town. In 1750, the company employed about 3,000 soldiers to defend its three major towns. But their military grew, and as it grew, they kept finding more and more ways to use it, and that in turn required more military expansion. By 1763, they had effectively kicked the French out of India. In 1765, they conquered Bengal, and by the 1770s, the company was pushing into central India and fighting a series of wars against the powerful Maratha Empire. In 1778, that 3,000 soldier army had grown to 67,000 private soldiers. In 1803, the East India Company's army, and again, I want to emphasize that this is a private army employed by a corporation for its own purposes, numbered 260,000 professional soldiers. I wish I could whistle, but I cannot. You said it. <laughs> that was twice the size of the British army at the time. What? Yep. Uh, wow. And furthermore, the private army of the British East India Company remained built around one crucial organizational strategy. Remember those European regiments? Even as the army grew, they always maintained two kinds of units. The bulk of the army was made up of local infantry, called sepoys, organized into regiments and commanded by British officers. But there were also always those separate, elite, European-only regiments. There were never very many of these. At one point, there were 170 sepoy regiments compared to 16 European regiments. But they were always maintained because the company did not trust its native soldier employees. It seems they felt that when the chips were down, they would not all be in the same boat. And they could only really rely on the loyalty of soldiers recruited in their own homelands. Speaking of the sepoys, to no one's surprise, it was they who bore the brunt of the East India Company's ambitions whenever it went to war. And it went to war ceaselessly, in and outside of India. No other army of the era spent as much time at war. It's almost like when a company designed to make a profit is paying to maintain a giant army, they feel obliged to use it. Hmm. Sepoys fought in Afghanistan, Burma, the Opium Wars in China, and even in the Crimean War, to the point where one article I read described them as the cannon fodder of imperialism. During the 1800s, the officers running the East India Company, and in particular its army, grew increasingly arrogant and out of touch with the views and needs of the local population. When the sepoys objected to their conditions, they were subjected to increasingly harsh and disproportionate punishments. Sensing the growing dissatisfaction, the company responded by assigning more European-born officers to the sepoy regiments, displacing native officers, and reducing even more the ambitious sepoys' hopes for advancement. Is any of this sounding sort of titanic yet? <laughs> the end of the East India Company's rule in India, and effectively the end of the company, came in 1857, when the sepoy regiments in the army of the Presidency of Bengal, fed up with their treatment, rebelled en masse. Eventually, the European regiments, the native forces that sided with the company, and reinforcements from the other two presidencies put down the rebellion. But the rebellion itself was a watershed moment for India, and it convinced the British government that it was finally time to take direct rule over the Indian subcontinent. I am not going to attempt to cover the rebellion. That could easily be a podcast entirely unto itself, and I hope someone makes one. Right now, I am only focusing on the structure of the company's private army, and so this is necessarily a limited section. But it's important to note that after the rebellion was suppressed and the British government took control of India, that distinction between the European regiments and the sepoy regiments raised its head once again, because the European regiments, and only the European regiments, were absorbed into the regular British army. Shigeaki Saugusa is a Japanese composer and businessman. He created a stage name with a different name kanji in 1989. It is pronounced exactly the same way, and it's only the second kanji of his given name, the Aki in Shigeaki, that changed. He did this because fortune-telling said he wouldn't be successful with the original. There's a kind of fortune-telling that is specifically based on the pronunciation and stroke count of names. And his original name kanji had an inauspicious stroke count. So he changed it. <laughs> What's a stroke count? So when you're writing uh, Chinese, Japanese, also used in Korean characters, 
In Japanese, they're called kanji.、Uh, it's the number of lines that you draw, the number of strokes of the brush or pen to create that character. Shigeaki was born in Nishinomiya in Hyogo Prefecture、uh, on July eighth, nineteen forty-two. His family moved a lot while he was growing up. He lived in Tokyo, Chiba, Kanazawa, but he began studying piano at age three or four and was enrolled in a special music program five years later. He studied composition under Yoshiro Irino, who's another famous composer from that time. He failed his first round of college entrance exams before enrolling a year later at Tokyo Arts University's music school in the composition program. Won a bunch of awards, graduated top of his class. And later completed a graduate program also in music composition. His father is credited with creating a long-running NHK program, NHK Nodojiman, which is a music competition and variety sort of program, as well as directing a different music program and working as a music critic also for NHK. Shigeaki himself performed on NHK Nodojiman when he was seven. <laughs> His younger brother became a director of films and NHK dramas. So Shigeaki had some deep. NHK connections bolstering his career, running counter to some of those <laughs> deep connections.、Uh, Shigeaki is a longtime supporter of the DPJ, which is an opposition political party in Japan,、uh, and he has spoken several times about losing work because of it. More recently, apparently, he's a big proponent of universal basic income, so he's been encouraging additional research into the benefits and feasibility of universal basic income in Japan. That was a neat little tidbit. <laughs> Tells you something about the guy. From the mid '80s, Shigeaki also worked as a host and anchor and commentator on TV, gaining a ton of exposure. His CV includes nearly 200 musical pieces, including opera, oratorio, orchestral music, concertos, ballets, chamber music, solo pieces, and choral music. 23 TV and radio themes for NHK Japan, Japan Television, TBS, Asahi Television, and Tokyo Television. And 68 pieces of background music for television, theater, film, anime, games, and more. That list also included things like theme songs and jingles for schools and,、hmm. and governmental organizations.、Hmm. He's currently the managing director of the May Corporation, which is a small company he founded that does music production, recording studio spaces, mixing, publishing, record labels. He's a visiting scholar at Tokyo Music University. He's the vice president of the Japanese Music Arrangers and Orchestrators Association, a trustee of the Foundation for Promotion of Symphony and Orchestral Music, a trustee of the Association for Contemporary Music, a trustee of the Watanabe Music Culture Forum, an advisor to the All Japan Piano Coaches Association, and a Cyber University visiting scholar. He seems like kind of a big deal. Kind of. Also, he wrote a bunch of books. I didn't even talk about that, <laughs> but he's written books as well.、Uh, But we are talking about him because he managed and oversaw the music for Molesuit Zeta Gundam, Double Zeta, Shars Counterattack, and the Zeta compilation movies. With regards to his style, he's made commercial music pretty continuously throughout his career. Early on, he did a lot of avant-garde music.、Uh, he practiced what's called the twelve-tone composition technique, which I'm not even going to try to explain because I'm not good enough at music <laughs> to do so. Uh, I'm sure some of the more musically inclined of you know what that is.、Uh, later, he focused on creating what he called beautiful music. He wanted to make experimental music that touched people's hearts, and I might have misunderstood the Japanese a little bit, but it sounded like he felt contemporary music was a bit too focused on being new and different, and not focused enough on the emotional impact that it had on people.、Uh, He calls his current mode neo romanticism, sweet melodies. He also self produces his concerts and tends to get involved in all aspects of a production. For instance, he's done some operas. He's very interested in opera. He does the music. He does the libretto, which, for those of you who aren't familiar with opera, that's the sung words.、Uh, he does casting. He's involved in the production itself. Sorry, he sounds like the Tomino of opera. He may well be. On his website, he lists his work on Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam and Shars Counterattack as among his most important work and representative of his best work, his masterpieces. Out of all the almost 200 works I mentioned before, his profile on his personal website lists eight, and these shows are two. 
of those eight. So he's very proud of this work and thinks it's some of his best. And I don't think he's pandering. He's clearly famous and established <laughs> enough. He doesn't need to pander to anime fans. <laughs> <laughs> he did work on a couple other anime, most of which I've never heard of. Ninja Man Ipe, Mighty Adam, Amon Saga, which is no VA, Ha to Kokuteiru, Heart Cocktail, and <laughs> Catnapped. Uh, I found a Japanese blog post, which is unfortunately unsourced, but talks about Shigeaki's work on Zeta specifically, that he had never heard of Gundam when he took the job, <laughs> and that he didn't make either very much or anything in residuals from the show broadcast, that he only initially made money from the album sales. The music was split into three albums, the first of which debuted after the show appeared at Oricon, and it debuted at 15th in some chart. The second and third albums also sold well. 15th may not sound great, but the blog mentions that Zeta wasn't the smash hit that the creators had hoped for. In an interview for Asahi Shimbun, a Japanese newspaper, in 2006, Shigeaki talks about how surprised he was at the long-term success of Gundam. Each new tape, laserdisc, DVD, or game means more royalties for him. <laughs> he also talks about the fact that he couldn't keep making opera, which is very expensive to produce and makes very little money, if it weren't for his Gundam royalties. <laughs> his Gundam royalties help fund his opera interest. It feels like that is part of the inspiration for his support for universal basic income, because he has a guaranteed income from Gundam. Forever. And that means he can do creatively fulfilling things like opera, and like make these great operas that enrich the world and not have to worry about whether or not he can eat afterward. It may well be. So the solution to universal basic income is everybody somehow needs to get a share of the Gundam royalties. <laughs> I did not have a chance. I really wanted to listen to some of his music before getting on here, and I did not have the chance to. But I feel like I need to track down one of his operas. <laughs> After you mentioned the opposition party that he supports, mm -hmm. I was looking at some of their ideology. Oh, yeah. Um, they identified themselves as revolutionary in that they were against the status quo and the current governing establishment. They argued that the bureaucracy of Japan was too large, too inefficient, and too conservative, and too saturated with cronies. They wanted a transparent, just, and fair society. They wanted to decentralize the government to allow citizens of all backgrounds and local governments to participate in decision-making. You keep saying wanted. Do they not exist anymore? They merged with another party in 2016. Oh, okay. Which is very common for Japanese opposition parties. Mm -hmm. And they advocated international relations based on self-reliance and mutual coexistence. And pacifism, of course. So very liberal. Mm-hmm. We did not wind up researching the family dynamics and effects on children of families experiencing domestic violence for this episode, but because it came up in the episode and the talkback, we want to mention a few things. Domestic and intimate partner violence is very common. One in four women and one in seven men experience physical violence, sexual violence, or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. If you or someone you know needs help with an unhealthy or dangerous relationship, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or visit their website, thehotline.org. In the United States, you can find state-specific resources by calling the Office on Women's Health at 1-800-994-9662 or visiting their website, womenshealth.gov. We know we have a fairly international listenership, but unfortunately cannot provide resources for countries we're not familiar with, but stay safe out there, y'all. Next time on episode 2.5, Loyalties. We will cover Zeta Gundam Episode 4, Emma's Decision, and talk about Gundam Diplomacy. Bleep boop boop bleep, bleep boop 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 Computer noises. Toxic masculinity. Out damn spot. Conversations with threatening energy. Prudish space Nazis. Hold me back, bro. Quattro is four times sassier. Franklin Taiwa kuki yomenai. More like Dilemma Sheen, am I right? Uh -huh. 
And Camille says something devastating. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, The Universal Century is so violent because it lacks idol culture. If Lin Min Mei existed in the Universal Century, mobile suits never would have been invented on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes to us from patron Emery Laserwolf. Quattro, do you think he's a new type? Huh? Elbow, elbow, nudge, nudge. Do you think he might be a new type? Kalbalgi. Kalbalgi beta. So, just saying too many so's. So, 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 so. where people were talking about beer and I wanted to I wanted to make a Homestar Runner reference and talk about not so cold ones or even warm ones <laughs> no why no don't don't bring up such awful things <laughs> I sound very like <laughs> I've been chewing gravel for the last three months. Lego Batman voice. <laughs> and I'm Nina, wondering if the tears of time taste like ordinary tears, or perhaps like chicken. Have you been tasting tears? Have you not ever? Not even your own? I mean, I guess my own. Yeah. But not other people's. Well, no, not other people's. But time is abstract enough that that doesn't feel weird. I was going to ask, are you time? Are the tears <laughs> of time your tears? No. We are both making sad faces. No sound associated. Sad and angry. And how? Terrible. So I it was, terrible. I thought it was terrible. <laughs>